Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Good. We should talk about... I mean, I could start off... We should talk about Swedenborg. Yeah. Yeah. Because of Blake's reading of Swedenborg and the kind of influence he had on William Blake. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the theories that's on my little notes I was just listening to, is that all this is a reaction. All of the the quotations of hell, proverbs of hell, are a a reaction to Swedenborg. Hmm. Well, could you tell us more? Yeah, okay. Emanuel Swedenborg, uh, born February 8th, 1688, died 29 March 1772, was a Swedish pluralistic Christian theologian, whatever that means, scientist, philosopher, and mystic. So his big book is called Heaven and Hell. Heaven and Hell, my God. It's like uh, uh, this book we're talking about uh, by uh, William Blake, which is called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Swedenborg had a prolific career as an inventor and scientist. At 1741, at the age of 53, he entered into a spiritual phase in which he began to experience dreams and visions. Beginning on Easter weekend, April 6, 1744. So as the American Revolution is starting to get underway, his uh, spiritual revolution is, uh, is happening. And uh, over the last 28 years of his life, Swedenborg wrote 18 published theological works and several more that remained unpublished. He termed himself, he termed himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book True Christian Religion. So he had a whole philosophy. It was kind of interesting that he starts out as a scientist and suddenly takes off in the other direction as a mystic. And he's, uh, you know, very much a person of this age of enlightenment, which is, you know, not many people during the so-called age of enlightenment actually became enlightened, but apparently he did. And there was, still is a church, I believe it still exists. I have this friend, uh, my friend Liam Watt, started out life, you know, when he was about 15, he decided to become a Swedenborgian minister. He was going to go to the Swedenborgian theological seminary, but changed his mind at the last minute. Anyway, I think that, uh, oh my God, Kant, 
Listen to this. In 1763, Immanuel Kant, at the beginning of his career, was impressed by accounts of Swedenborg's psychic abilities and made inquiries to find out if they were true. He ordered all eight volumes of the expensive Arcana Celestia, the heavenly arcana. So, uh, and apparently Kant became kind of a believer, referring to Swedenborg's miraculous gift and characterizing him as reasonable, agreeable, remarkable, and sincere. You know, that's the other thing is that Swedenborg was a very normal guy. And there used to be this uh, center, the Swedenborg Center on 23rd Street. And I used to walk into it sometimes. They had a bunch of books. And who are the great Swedenborgians? Do you know? Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> Helen Keller. I read her book, My Religion. Cheapers. Which is, which is uh, all about her discovery of Swedenborg, if I remember correctly. Hmm. And I think somebody like Czeslaw Milos. Czeslaw oh, Milos. Is that right? One of those guys. The Polish poet, the Nobel Prize winner. Or maybe the guy that wrote the, uh, uh, what is it called? Unbearable Lightness of Being. Kundura. Yeah, I forget which one. Oh, yeah, the, so here, uh, wait a second, Milos. here's a list. Uh, Wikipedia will help me out here. Ah, Czeslaw Milosz, I was right. Here's a list of people influenced by him. Robert Frost, influenced by Swedenborg. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges, Arthur Conan Doyle, Ralph Waldo Emerson. It helps to have three names, obviously. Uh, George Innes, that very boring uh, painter of the mystical landscapes. Carl Jung, Henry James Sr. That's right, Henry James. Did you know that Henry James' uh, father, the father of William James and Henry James, was a philosopher who wrote like 27 volumes of Swedenborgian mystical truth and then starved himself to death in order to see God. Joseph ah. Smith, D.T. Suzuki, give me a break, and uh, Strindberg, August Strindberg, and W.B. Yeats. So, you know, he had in his quiet way Swedenborg... Uh, Influence, And then I think, if I remember correctly, Ted Berrigan told this story about giving a reading at the Swedenborg Society on 23rd Street. And he said a guy came in who announced that he had a gun. And uh, but I forget what happened. I mean, I think nobody got shot. That's my memory. Now you, Joseph Smith, he is uh, a founder, one of the fathers of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, the ex I mean, the father, the creator. The father, yeah. I mean, you know, unless you believe that uh, it was true that he found these golden plates and that the angel Moroni uh, translated him, translated the plates, unless you believe that, then he, uh, Joseph Smith, invented the whole religion. Hmm. Yeah, those plates we've talked about. Um, yeah. You know, what happened to the plates, uh, you know, and that, that kind of thing. Because they must have been a bit heavy. I don't know. But irrespective of that, does that mean that there's a facet, if not more, of the Mormon faith that is Swedenborgian, that, that, that I mean, soars on the wings of Swedenborg? That's what they seem to be implying. You know, they just say influenced by 
what are Sweden? Do you know what his um, theological tenets are? Is his what what what? Yeah, what's the boilerplate on being a swing boardian? I might be one, frankly. Uh, here's I, think I, just, I have a copy of Heaven and Hell, actually. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was looking um, at scanning. Around. Let's see. It looks like he rejected the uh, Trinity as a Trinity of persons, which he said was not taught in the early Christian Church. There was, for instance, no mention in the apostolic writings of any son from eternity. Instead, he explained in his theological writings how the divine trinity exists in one person, in one God, the Lord Jesus Christ, which he said is taught in Colossians 2.9. According to the heavenly doctrine, Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world due to the spread of evil here. Sounds a little bit like uh, the way Krishna appears when uh, the Dharma decays. Uh, Swedenborg spoke in virtually all his works against what he regarded as the incomprehensible trinity of persons concept, whatever that means. Okay, I'll give you what he said about marriage. One often discussed aspect of Swedenborg's writings, his ideas on marriage. Swedenborg himself remained a bachelor all his life, but that did not hinder him from writing voluminously on the subject. His work on marriage love, conjugal love in older translations. Uh, is about this a central question with regard to marriage is whether it stops at death or continues into heaven. Yeah, a lot of people, I think when I was a kid, people used to worry about this. Uh, I mean, my friends and I would discuss this. The quality of the relationship between husband and wife resumes in the spiritual world in whatever state it was at their death in this world. Thus, a couple in true marriage remain together in that state in heaven into eternity. Wow. Socrates would have been bummed. <laughs> Lots of us uh, would be a little disappointed. Swedenborg saw creation as a series of pairings descending from the divine love and wisdom that define God and are the basis of creation. This duality can be seen in the pairing of good and truth, Charity and faith, God and the church, husband and wife. Yeah. So I'm kind of <laughs> picking up that Blake, you know, if he were sort of poking fun at kind of a Swedenborgian display or articulation of experience into like some kind of parabola para parabolic, um, you know, structure jeepers i mean uh he's kind of right too i think you know i mean it seems to me swedenborg may have had experience but the way in which he interpreted it seems kind of flat you know going back to corinthians and sort of you know seems a little cobbled together if i may be frank yeah i know what you mean i mean one of my theses about this book we're looking at the proverbs of hell <clears throat> is that it's a reaction to Swedenborg. It's uh, yeah. because if you read the whole book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, he uh, rejects, uh, Blake rejects Swedenborg. I mean, mm -hmm. I just had a, what's the word, simplistic notion that uh, Swedenborg saw thousands of angels. He understood all about angels, supposedly. But where were the demons? And I think uh, Blake had this feeling like, 
we need demons, not just angels. Mm. And I think that is what inspired him to write The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, to look for the wisdom in uh, in the demons, not just in the angels. You know, it reminded me of my own frustration with the New Age, which which seems to me is all angels and no demons. It's all kind of um, if you uh, you create your own reality. So if you just stop thinking negatively, your life is going to be perfect. Well, it's I don't think it's that simple. First of all, you can't only think positive. And second of all, even if you did only think positive, I think a truck might still hit you. So, uh, you know, the world needs more complexity. Also, a great mind like Blake, I think, seeks complexity, one could argue. You could also argue that the world doesn't need more duality. Yeah. Well, I think that's what I think that's what. Blake is trying to do is transcend duality in uh, the marriage of heaven and hell. Right on. So your sense is that he was adding to um, Swedenborg. He he wasn't necessarily um, countering Swedenborg. That he he was inspired by Swedenborg's. Um... No, I think he's. I think that yeah. Sparrow is saying that Blake studied Swedenborg. You know, got the tenor of what he was proposing and realized that Swedenborg had left the downstairs out of the <laughs> equation and, you know, sought to add, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, because it's a marriage of heaven and hell, then it's a union of heaven and hell. So mm. Sparrow's yes, saying that's that that's right. pointing toward a, a non-dual um, state. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, the problem a lot of us have with mysticism is you first encounter mysticism, you think this is great, it transcends everything. You know, the first time you read the Bhagavad Gita. And then the uh, the more you're involved with it, you realize, well, what about the higher chakras and the lower chakras? What about the idea you have to transcend your animal nature and reach this higher level? Isn't that just the same crap that's in Christianity? You, you you keep finding that you, your attempts to, what's the word, transcend dualism, keep running up against new dualisms. Right. And, and that's how I picture uh, Blake discovering Swedenborg, being uh, delighted, being enlightened by it or inspired by it, and then hmm. realizing, well, it's still stuck somewhere. Yeah. And I would also say adding new hierarchical structures hierarchies oh here i'm, I'm finding in uh, the marriage of heaven and hell one of the lines of uh, where he rejects where blake rejects swedenborg he says uh, uh well maybe i'll read this part i have always found that angels have the vanity to speak of themselves as the only wise the only wise ones this they do with a confident insolence sprouting from systematic reasoning. Thus, Swedenborg boasts that what he writes is new, though it is only the contents or index of already published books. And uh, and then he, furthermore, he's, there's another part where he says, um, he says, Swedenborg shows the folly of churches and exposes hypocrites till he imagines that all are religious 
and he himself, the single one on earth that ever broke a net, a net. Now hear a plain fact. Swedenborg has not written one new truth. Now hear another. He has written all the old falsehoods. <laughs> so oh, it's a pretty oof. ringing denunciation of poor Swedenborg. Taking prisoners. Yeah. You know, the ultimate smackdown. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the anxiety of influence. I'm like obsessed with that phrase and that idea, the anxiety of influence. In other words, you're, you have something that really inspires you. You read Allen Ginsberg, uh, Powell, and you think, my God, this is the greatest thing I ever read. I'm now going to become a writer. And eventually you have to break with Powell. You have to write the opposite of Powell. You have to write Le Woe. That's Howell backwards. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been here before. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I and I, I think always I talk may, about the anxiety of influence. Yeah, I may even have said, you know, evoked Walt Whitman. You know, he learns my lesson best, who under it understands to destroy the teacher. Mm. In so many words, he mm. said it better. So I think, you know, he goes on to say, thus Swedenberg's writings are a recapitulation of all superficial opinions and an analysis of the more sublime, but no further. I mean, I, it propels me forward to uh, do yeah. a little trashing of William Blake. Like, uh, let's see Whoa. what we got. Yeah, where are we up to? Are I mean, we if, ready to? If you took Swedenborg down, I think we got a shot at. Uh, oh yeah, that's a good point. Taking, I don't know that I have the courage down to take a Blake peg or two. Well, we left off at bring out number and weight and measure in a year of dearth. Oh yeah, right. And whose goes next? It's probably me, I guess. Yeah, it's always you. <laughs> okay. So here we go. No bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. Huh. In other words, don't listen to what Swedenborg tells you. Or maybe don't listen to what William Blake tells you. And me, just... I think of um, classical Greek mythology. Oh, yeah. And the figure of Icarus, who soars too high with the wings of his father, Daedalus creates. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I never thought of, you're talking, you're sort of implying that there's like an Oedipal relationship between Icarus and Daedalus. In some ways, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd never thought about it in those terms either. In other words, Daedalus does okay, because he made the wings. He kind of knows how they work. But his son, who's, you know, just using his father's wings, goes too high, doesn't quite. He's a kid. He wants to outdo everybody. And well, then I think the, the, the rap with Icarus, as I recall, Sparrow, is that he sought to, he sought union with the son. Yeah. Uh -huh. Is that right? Yeah, he, he wanted to go to up and join reach the, the son. son. Yeah. But unfortunately, Daedalus uses wax. Yeah. To affix the various um, pieces of the wings and um, the wax melts. It's a very vivid story. Like, it makes you think maybe they did make wings out of wax back then. Because how would you know that, that, that wax would melt? Seems like if you hadn't done it, you wouldn't really think that far ahead and recognize that it's dangerous to make wings out of wax. Uh, well, even... Uh 
on certain days, I guess, in Greece, you know, it is hot as hell. Oh, yeah. And, I've been you there. know, the wax melts. Yeah, you're. Yeah. Oh, even if you're not flying. Yeah, yeah, just hanging out on some rocks with your wax and it's uh, going to melt. And didn't Leonardo we used to da Vinci... fry eggs on sidewalk in Washington, D.C.? Oh, yeah. Wash. Yeah, I was there in the summer once. It was unbelievably hot, like India, uh, D.C. It's hotter than New York City. I, think. I know, and the cicada are coming. And it's, it's uh, the what's the word? Uh, humid. This, uh, Sparrow, did you know the cicada are coming? I heard somebody say that. It's I, the 17-year cicada. It's the big um, huh. armada of... Huh. In the uh, you know wave of circadian rhythm of this earth, yeah. And uh, <laughs> no, but in DC, the cicadas are. It was incredible. Like everywhere, you would wake up in the morning, and there'd be cicadas attached to your screen window, and the hmm. and the shells of the cicada, and hmm. their red eyes staring at you through <laughs> the uh, screen. It was intense. It was, it was and different. the sound. Oh, the deafening sound. Yeah. I and remember walking through the, the grass and the crunch of all the shells under my foot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being audible. Yeah, and sometimes not just shells. What do you mean? Well, sometimes you'll step on a cicada. Like a they're real everywhere. living cicada. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard being a Jane, hard being a absolute... Uh, pacifist in those periods of time must be excruciating <laughs> but i think there must be like good recipes for cicada i haven't oh, heard true. any yet but um well maybe tommy and janice ha huh, janet i was thinking of them no, yeah but we're, be but we're vegetarians. vegetarian oh you're vegetarian right yeah. yeah we had uh, in my field biology class in high school the last day, Mr. Bobrowski asked us all to bring exotic treats, and somebody brought chocolate-covered ants. Nice. And I can still remember eating that ant like it's a vivid, crunchy memory in my mind. And very fine, dark chocolate that you didn't see much back then. Just crunched, you know, it didn't really have a taste. Mm. One thing that occurred to me relative to that parable is something that Robert Browning said, and I can't fix on his exact words, mm. but he said something like, how else can I test my limits unless I break all bounds? Oh. Uh, in other words, the idea being that to find out your real dimension, you need to do extraordinary things that, you know, are outside of what your pre-ascribed um, context might be. You got to take bold, it to the limit. Bold. Always be bold. Boldness is all. I think that's yeah. Goethe said that. Boldness? Um, yeah, yeah, be bold. Be bold in all things. Boldness is all. And I think that it's a romantic trope. Mm, also that's a good I'm point. Saying. You're talking about this proverb, no bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. Well, I think it's a moderation of that sense of the passing of an old fixed frame, which I guess would have been 
around Christianity and these mm. opening um, to new possibilities based on individual experience and mm. that poets in part are seeking to articulate the gestalt of that age in which everybody was sort of a little bit um, um, shaking themselves out of it. Oh, yeah. I guess. Out of feudalism. According to yeah, the uh, Marxist interpretation, it's uh, the death of feudalism, the death of of this sense of divine order that uh, I'm a serf, you're a knight, he's a lord, we all are fixed in our uh, roles, our identities, right, and that's that what God wants. Yeah, that's sort of Ptolemaic universe, yeah. And uh, capitalism comes and uh, destroys that, you know, suddenly got to pay money for everything. You're no longer just living this uh, barter type economy. Mm. And uh, this, you can do anything. I mean, if you, that's kind of what Shakespeare is all about, that early sense of capitalism breaking the uh, a lot of what he does. A lot of what Shakespeare does is ridiculing kings. Um and a lot of what inspired, come to think of it, what inspired Blake, including in this book, is uh, Milton. And Milton was involved in killing the king. He was part of this kind of revolution that overthrew the king. And, and you know, which was like an unspeakable gesture at that time. It would be like blowing up Facebook today or something. Yeah. Ge uh, regenocide. I think it was Charles II. Yeah. yeah. Charles II. 16... 1649. Is that right? Yeah. And then Milton died in... Yeah, wasn't it? Charles I was deposed, right? Right, killed. Charles I, not the second. Okay. Second. Charles I. Yeah. Charles I, yeah. And that inspired, or seems to be connected to uh, Milton writing uh, Paradise Lost, where... Uh, Milton is writing the story of um, Adam and Eve being expelled from paradise. And he has in the book, I don't know if we've discussed this already, you know, God somehow comes across as this feeble, almost pathetic figure. And Satan is this heroic, powerful, romantic hero that, uh, Milton didn't intend to write it this way. One gets the sense. He was a dour Puritan who believed in all these religious beliefs, but somehow he made the devil the star of the show. And Blake, I don't know if Blake is the first person to read uh, Milton and realize, my God, Satan is great, and the, and God is like a dowdy old made <laughs> mm -hmm. didn't, uh, didn't Milton give Satan wings oh I believe Satan, Satan has uh, sports a pair of kind of bat wings I don't it sounds right carefully at uh, Paradise Lost I think it's in uh, didn't we read that in uh, Dante doesn't uh, doesn't Satan oh, have wings fanning. All yeah, the way he's back in his wings, yeah. yeah. Right, so he's I trying to escape common... from the uh, ice. He's embedded in ice, See, and his wings Satan... are pathetically uh, uh, kind of wiggling, trying to get free of the ice, I think. Is yeah. that right, Andrew? But, the, but yeah. what I'm also saying is that Satan, you know, uh, soared on his own wings. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like he opened his wings and he tested, you know, his bounds, which, you know, I guess. Um, but he shattered. fell out of heaven. He didn't, he didn't rise. He fell. Yeah. And shattered. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, so this isn't really soaring like uh, yeah, within the. Well, yeah. To, it doesn't. It's soaring down, not soaring up. Uh huh. I think. And also, so he's not, saying a so, bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's no bird soars too high. If he, if soars. he soars with his own wings, no bird falls too low. <laughs> if his own wings fail him. If he flies with someone else's wings. I, I guess, I suppose. I mean, uh, I mean, as a metaphor, yeah. it's weak. Since we are, have now decided we're going to critique uh, Blake, because all birds fly with their own wings. I mean, it doesn't, you know, as a metaphor, simile or whatever it is. I guess a metaphor, uh, because uh, there aren't birds that have uh, what's the word? Uh, artificial arti yeah, wings. What's, what's that yeah. word I'm thinking Art of that they use for like someone who has an artificial leg? A pro, pro yeah. Birds don't have prosthetic wings. That I, even now, right. even in the modern world. Well, I think the supposition is that we're human beings are birds, that we're like birds. Like yeah. he's making a, um, I think it's a metaphor. Or is it yeah. a, yeah, it's a metaphor it's or a an metaphor. analogy. I mean, there is this trope in Christianity, but I think it's more recent. But it's uh, when you die, an angel will give you your wings. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering. I don't think it dates back to um, to Blake. And, and also, uh, they performed "It's a Wonderful Life" right. In, uh, yeah, right in the Phoenicia Theater recently, and I think I'd never watched it. I think I guess that's how Jewish my household was. I don't know, but uh, so I listened to it. No, I, I watched it, kind of a stage reading of it, and it, one of the big themes, or kind of the main sort of point of the movie, is that. The not every angel has wings, but if an angel does a particular good deed, every time you hear a bell ring, that an means an angel has received its wings or something, gotten its wings. Right. That's when a, a person who's dead becomes an angel, right? Well, they, I think these are no, different no, levels no, no. of angels. It's, I think the the name of the angel who. Visit, visits Cahuga Falls or, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm missing, uh, who visits something Mills. It's the guy's name. The I don't uh, remember. evil I town patriarch. Oh, um, yeah. But I think the name of the angel is not Chester, but is Harvey. No, Harvey is the rabbit in the movie Harvey. Because <laughs> this angel is a woman. This angel's a very sweet woman. Uh, uh, well, in It's a Wonderful Life? I think, well, in this version, in the version I saw. Ah. Well, in the Gene Wilder film, which is what everybody refers to, it's a um, kind of an elderly, sort of boozy-looking man. In no, Billy it's the Jimmy Stewart film is the film that's that, the, uh, what's the word, canonical film. Correct. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And Bedford Falls is where it takes place. Ah, very good. Right. I mean, I was thinking wings, if if the metaphor is people, let's say he's not talking about birds, but he's talking about people, what is it that we do that is most like flying? To me, it's uh, 
imagining, thinking, using our flights of fancy is the phrase. You know, that I think is is what comes to my mind. Because Blake is writing a prophetic book. He's writing about visions. So I think he's maybe talking about himself. Nobody soars too high if they use their own uh, fancy. Is fancy is the word he uses in this in this book. He uh-huh. keeps referring to these different sort of visions. Seems like I would call them visions, but he calls them a memorable fancy. Uh-huh. But if you use your own mental powers of imagination, you'll never go too far. Or of, yeah, of kind of like um, radical thought uh, versus yeah. versus a constant refrain or consultation to the Corinthians, like in Swedenborg. Well, I think Swedenborg... As he speaks of. Yeah, I don't think Swedenborg uh, is, is going by the book. I think he's having his own visions, but somehow... Blake decided that they, they were ultimately just uh, re-recitations of what had gone before. Yeah, but I thought in your rap about Swedenborg, you spoke of his having tied his idea of, you know, exploding the three-person God, um, oh, yeah. you know, by going back to the Corinthians. And, yeah, I don't know if he did that or... Someone else was saying that that his uh, his thought was related to Corinthians. In an absolute reading, though, of Blake, would that be like having an artificial armature in your wing because you're not trusting your own experience or something you mean like you that? You keep revising, going back to the scriptures. You mean? Yeah, like you're improving on your wings by adding reference to <laughs> Corinthians you know you're shoring up your the these oh. things that you've made I mean I sort of think of the wings as being made you know to go back to what Andrew you know with Icarus and uh, Daedalus adding new gadgets microchips to your wings would be uh, going back to these doctrines I mean what I took it to mean was that Swedenborg had these visions but his visions happen to coincide with certain aspects of the, uh, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's a good point really that you're making is that Swedenborg is having visions. He's not uh, trying to, uh, you know, create a theology. He's just feeling is experiencing these sudden transports. Uh, and then he, he tries to sort of tie it in to the tradition of Christianity. Is that the, I wonder if that's the problem from Blake's perspective is that he concludes in the rational mind. He gets out of the rational mind and and sort of returns to it. And that's where he plants his coup stick in this Mm. development of this new systematic theology of sorts. I wonder yeah, I mean, it's, it says that he wasn't trying, that Swedenborg was not trying to start a church. Swedenborg made no attempt to found a church. A few years after his death, for the most part in England, small re- reading groups formed to study his teachings. But I think they did have, I think there eventually was a church. I thought that somebody told me there's still a church somewhere. I would. I think there there is there is a Swedenborg church. I think I, in somewhere in New York City, there's yeah, one. I, I'm Definitely. Sure. 
yeah. I've passed it before. I, I'm pretty certain of it. Yeah, I don't know why. Inside. Well, it's it's Wikipedia. It's not, uh, you know, the ultimate truth is the thing. Shall I move on to the next? No. No, I go next. There's something, uh, there's something um, with wings. <laughs> I kind of want to figure out about the wings. I mean, I, I concur with Sparrow that it has something to do with um, thought. Hmm. Soaring to... And I guess um, this idea of soaring too high. So if you're getting outside of yourself or getting up high so that you can see things from a different perspective. Oh, that's nice, yeah. I mean, I guess that's part of this idea of the wings. I just, uh, you know, what does that mean? I mean, one thought that I have, which is a kind of, you know, what's the word? sort of cultural studies type analysis, Derrida, Derridian oh, type analysis that comes it. to me, is that uh, exactly. all these proverbs are about the proverbs. <laughs> so, you know, he's saying no bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. He says, here I am soaring with my own wings. I'm writing these proverbs with my on my own uh, intellectual and spiritual power. And I can't go wrong. <laughs> Something like that. I totally hear you, and I and I think that um, it's more in Deleuze that I think is a is an interesting kind of thing to tie in, which is what we're talking about are lines of flight, mm. right? Um, which is a phrase that comes up with Deleuze principally, oh. but other you know French poet philosophers. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of, you know, because a bird is in flight, a bird goes out, goes up above, goes into a flight state and is seeking to go as far, you know, as it can or needs to go. But I guess that's, you know, to be radical in a line of flight, to be radical in a line of thought is, um, that is a profound exercise, isn't it? to take matters as far as they may be taken and to see what remains. Um, I mean, I, I find myself, I'm suddenly obsessed with the question of why would a bird want to fly high? Most birds do not fly high. They just fly from one branch to another. The only birds that fly high, comes to my mind, are birds of prey, hawks, because they're kind of riding these very high winds. And look, they have great eyesight, and they're looking down for a little mouse to eat. Or uh, migrating birds, you know, fly very high. Mm. But, you know, it's funny that he says fly high, because is that really the purpose of flight? Usually the purpose of flight, speaking of lines of flight, is to go from one place to another, not to go up. <laughs> uh -huh. Maybe it's a, a failing of Blake that he's obsessed with getting high getting on this high spiritual level instead of getting to somewhere. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, all lines of flight fail. What do you mean? I don't know. I think that that's sort of a trope of the French, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I never heard of lines of flight. I just know everything I know about those kind of French thinkers comes from reading The Village Voice in the 1990s, and I don't remember that part being in it, the lines of flight. 
This this um, proverb yeah. really throws a, um, a wrench into my cog, so to speak, because uh-huh. of, because when it was it was written when the very mid part of the um, no no it was written what toward the end of the 18th century. I think it was 1789. Yeah. What mm-hmm. what um what bird would soar too high? Was that even seen as a problem? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like air traffic issues existed at this moment. <laughs> well, there there is an African vulture that flies at thirty six thousand feet, and I think there are other birds that fly. You know, in like so high, there's no there's no atmosphere, there's no oxygen. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah they have. They store oxygen in their bodies. They have they some want... special capacity to um, take a deep breath and dive deep into the sky. But why do they want to be so high? You know, in this case, I don't know, because you can't see diddly down on the ground. It's not right. like, uh, but maybe you look for other birds that are flying. I don't know. It's a good or question. It's I don't just, think there's uh, a big migratory it's... Um, it's kind of just a way to like hang out. Like you don't have to do much at that height. You don't have to flap your wings very much. It's kind of it's kind yeah. of an easy berth up there. Yeah, must be um, a yeah, sensorial experience for the birds. Yeah, <laughs> there must be some genetic advantage. I don't know. Oh, you're right. That's a good point. Well, you're the only thing up there. <laughs> that's uh, that counts for something. You've got your own niche. It seems to me, based on my, I did take a course in ecology that I might have flunked or nearly flunked at Cornell, and I have a feeling finding your own niche is a big deal in the ecological life. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a little bit maybe what this is about. I mean, it's funny. Like, you know, he's a, the thing about flying really high is you're, you're alone. You're finding your own niche. You're mm-hmm. not. You're not among all the other hubbubbing pigeons that are all hanging out, gossiping, insulting each other, trying to raise themselves up in the pecking order. Leveraging, planning coup sticks, totally. Yeah, yeah, you're not. And that's what Blake is doing. Blake is niching. Well, he's the marriage of heaven and hell, and is and um. I guess, you know, leaving behind a body of work in which the, you know, the walls of which are the sort of shell of what you were, that, that you leave for people to read, is, is a niche. And it, it reminds me of the hippies that are taking acid, going on trips, getting really high, in a way kind of escaping, dropping out of society. And but this is kind of the opposite metaphor. You're dropping up huh, above society. You're fl- lifting up out of society rather than dropping out of society. But I, you know, there's a problem with that. I think that that whole mystical, solipsistic, uh, what is the word, quietist approach. You know, I'm gonna all by myself seek the heights. This is the romantic fallacy, you might call it. Because as my father still says from time to time, said it the other time, last time I was talking to him, life is with people. It's the title of some book about Jews in the ghetto or something. It's like a maybe a Yiddish proverb translated. Yeah, these are paths of renunciation. 
what Pens, you're speaking so, of, yeah. Sarah. It's like renouncing, you know, Pens, trying to would, go would, someplace else, you know? I, I would call it paths, a, paths of escape more than renunciation. Escape, yeah. And I, I like not into not um, the path of integration. Mm. Yeah. Of, I apologize. I feel like I've been um, doing my own pigeon clucking over here. I, did I, <laughs> I'm going to add to what you know. You referenced the um, your, the quotation from your father. It reminds me of the final words of Christopher McCandless, the young man that the book Into the Wild is based on. Oh. In the '90s, he um, burned all of his money after he graduated Emory. Huh. Came from a wealthy background. Um, his father's a NASA scientist. He ended up. Um, hitchhiking across the uh, U.S. for a few years, two years, living for some time in Slab City, Southern California, living in some utopian rent-free communities. And it, was, it wasn't it was enough for him. So he went, he went up into a, the Alaska outback, mm. into Denali National Park, and found this um, old school bus that had a, um, was converted to a hunting station he lived in there as a little wood wood burning stove and he survived the winter but then Mm. he's sick because he misidentified a wild um potato i think he 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 misidentified some plant ate it and became paralyzed and couldn't digest food and left a um, journal and the last entry is happiness is meant to be shared Wow. Like he realized he realized he was trying to get out of there to reintegrate into some sort of sociality, but he, mm. because the um, snow had melted and it was impossible to ford across the, the, the creek, the narrow mm. creek that he had crossed that the previous winter. Mm. Wow. It's a really story. Have you, have you ever heard of it into the wild? I've heard of it. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's the kind of book that, One's friends are always saying, you got to read this book. But I don't like to read these kind of modern books that are, I don't know. To me, they all sound like magazine articles. You know, no offense. No, I'm not taking offense. But the story is an intriguing one in terms of someone who renounces the world and then, but then ends up yearning for it and just seeing, seeing, seeing things in a less dualistic way. And also writing, the point that writing is a form of sharing and that Blake, for all his transcendence, is writing all this down and he wants us to read it. And he and that's a social act. So th- there is a there is a way where you transcend in order to to report back to the pigeons on the ground. Report, uh, report back to the campfire. Yeah, the, the, the people that you escape it's a shamanic journey maybe a failed shamanic journey but a shamanic journey nonetheless that both blake and this uh into the wild dude are doing uh-huh. i mean i just been reading this book by uh, uh this woman laura dassau walls is her name it's a recent biography of uh, thoreau and thoreau uh, when he goes to maine he meets this penobscot indian who starts teaching him nature lore and Thoreau who like, you know, for a guy in Massachusetts, he's completely in the wild, but he encounters this native guy and he realizes how little he knows about anything about the forest. Even after a lifetime, you know, he's not that old, but 
he died young, but, you know, even after a lifetime of observation. And it makes me think, you know, that's what you need. You really need culture to survive in the wild. You need the wisdom of generations and generations of people like the native people had. They they know which foods to, you know, which... Uh, Root to eat. Yeah, which are dangerous and which are not. You know, these Americans try to reinvent the wheel, and there's something to it. I mean, in a sense, into the wild is proof that uh, uh, some birds soar too high if they soar with their own wings. I mean, he's a guy, he soared uh-huh. with his own wings, and uh, it didn't work out so great. No, it ended up um, concluding rather ugly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Although, who's to say, maybe in his last moments he attained some sort of enlightenment. Maybe he said, you know, I did it my way, this is what I wanted, and uh, this is how it went, you know. Well, I guess, you know, what I would posit then, Sparrow, is, you know, like Thoreau, when we talk about the wings, um, you know, what we're talking about is some structure in ourselves that causes a change, and that um, this 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 capacity that's wing like uh, the wing like aspect of of mm-hmm. um, being human um, is partially based on magnetism is what I would say is that we all have a certain intellectual I don't intellectual maybe is the wrong word but we all have kind of a frame and then to that frame we magnetize we're attracted. Two, we encounter different things out of which we build a set of wings. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Like we aren't given our wings. We have to build our wings. Hmm. I mean, it's a little bit kind of like that Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, saying, you know, build your being is a phrase that he had. And um, it's that kind of sense, I think, is what we mean by wings, maybe, is that we draw from a, what sources around us, you know, including berries and things mm. growing out of the ground and cicadas and so on. Um, mm. You know, we build a kind of armature and that causes a, a flight that causes a mm. life. I mean, a life is a flight, you know, going back to... Um, the venerable mm. Bede and the, his ecclesiastical history. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, what you're saying sounds to me like existentialism, that we we create uh, our lives. We There's no one really telling us what to do. We have to make our own identities. There's that uh, great quotation from Jean-Paul Sartre, what... Uh, uh, the success of man is what he makes from what he is made of. <laughs> Translation <laughs> is something along those lines. No, no, that's a good way of saying it. It appears in a, a work called Search for a Method that was published in the late 1960s, which is uh, an extended <laughs> essay um, that uh, was influential to me in graduate school. Oh, because he develops this notion of the uh, progressive project. Huh. That, mm-hmm. that what you what you make of what you're made of is what he calls the um, progressive project. What you what you create in your little workshop 
It's in your tools. The items at your disposal, very much what Sam was saying, Mm. um, that that the, the healthiest people, the most realized people, have these progressive projects in which they uh, mine all of the regressive energies of where they've been, who they've been, all the objects in their environment to to create some new geometry. And mm. I think that geometry is a set of wings. I like I it. Think, I think everybody mm. does it. Some people's wings are stumpy and <laughs> um, you know, don't spread out and, you know, somebody has a broken wing, you know, some mm. did, but some people have like really nice set of wings, you know, and they do <laughs> what they're supposed to do. Somehow the way you say it, it does have a certain sexual connotation to my mind. Like that, she's, she's got quite a nice set of wings on her, that uh, gal over there in the corner. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, because it you know it builds up your muscles, flying, your pectoral muscles. Yeah, I like this. Hey, I like your wings. <laughs> I mean, in the metaphor, it seems like everybody flies. Uh, interesting, he used the word soars, isn't it? He doesn't yeah. say no bird flies too high, and he repeats soars. Soars yeah. is different than flies. I'm just doing some like Jungian circumambulation here and projecting, but uh, you know the the Gospels, which um, Blake knew, um, are um, symbolized by a animal totem. Huh. Each one has its own totem, and it's uh, a lion, a bull, um, a human being, and um, a hawk. Which is which? And the hawk is, I'm pretty sure, the hawk is the gospel according to John. I thought so, because John is the fourth. Which is the most mystical gospel, and also a gospel that had its own source material. It didn't share the same source material as the synoptic gospels, the gospels according to Mark and Matthew and Luke. own trajectory and there's a lot of mysteries in it and a lot of mysteries surrounding it in terms of its evolution and all the sources that inspired it its Um, progress and you know it's interesting to point out that biblical that piece of biblical history um, in other words that john is the only one with wings john is the only one with wings yeah and under the in, in medieval art illuminated manuscripts which blake was very aware of i mean he created his own mm. the iconographic tradition of um capturing these totem animals is very rich huh. it's very rich it's uh, i took a course in the illuminated manuscript of the middle ages that barred with this woman named jean french now huh. her all of the hawks all of the birds all of the wings all of the feathers embedded in these illuminated manuscripts from the Middle Ages. Wow. And they were beautiful, I would guess. Oh, they were just gorgeous. We got to go to the Morgan Library. And oh, yeah. Their collection of uh, medieval illuminated manuscripts for our class. It was a real highlight. You mean you went to, like, the secret library itself that not everybody gets to go to? Exactly. You know, as a sophomore, hipsy, that was just like, I don't know, I was, like, seeing the uh, the grail or something, you know, it's yeah, I know what you mean. I go to the, uh, or used to, when the world was open, 
I uh, went to the to the Morgan quite a bit because I had a press pass. I could get in for free. And um, I love the Morgan Library. And it does have this air of sophisticated mystery about it. Yeah. I would also want to point out that the Harley Davidson motorbike, the symbol for Harley Davidson is a wing. Oh. oh, just a wing? Well, I mean, they're, I guess they're on both sides. So there are two wings on the gas tank, generally, right? Are they hawk wings? Do you know? There's some bird of prey. I think probably yeah, that's the a, eagle or you know a falcon. Yeah, but I think that uh, also Harley Davidson could use this parable uh, of hell. Um, <laughs> or not parable. This proverb of hell: No bird soars too high if he soars on a on his own wings. Hmm. Is that true? Is Harley, I mean, Harley Davidson, a motorbike can feel like an extension of yourself. Yeah. You know, you get into a symbiosis with this machine. Well, it's your own. I mean, in the sense that you bought it. The, uh, what about the, uh, the Gospel of John? Is it later than the other? I think of it as being the latest, the last of the four. Well, Gospels. It's, um, I think it is the most, I think it is the latest because Mark is the first. And then what Matthew and Luke and Luke wrote Acts to Acts of the Apostles. And then, yeah, I think John is the earliest texts are the letters of Paul. Those are the uh, earliest ones written before, as I mentioned in the previous podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Where do you think John comes from? Do you have a theory, uh, Andrew? I don't really know enough about biblical um, scholarship. I, I don't recall what was said in the survey class I took. Um, I do feel that I do recall remembering that there may have been some um, more of an Eastern influence. Is this is this John of Patmos? No, different. So this is is, that certain because there are two Johns. Yeah, yeah, more than two. Right, there's John the Baptist. There's this kind of weird schizophrenia, you know, between the Lamb of God and. Um, you know, the two faces of Jesus, right? Yeah. The two faces of Jesus. Well, just the angry, judgmental Jesus, you know, the, uh, oh. the righteous church militant Jesus versus the Catholic uh, hmm. healer magician. Yeah. Isn't that a kind of weird schizophrenia? I mean, a kind of split? Yeah. Well, it's also in everybody. I mean, that's one of the things I was thinking that uh, what Blake is trying to do is kind of balance the angels and the demons and and that that is how we really are. I mean, there is a side of us in, in Judaism. They talk about the left hand of God and the right hand of God, the God of uh, the, the hand of justice and the hand of mercy. But I don't remember. I think it's like counterintuitive. I think the right hand is the hand of mercy and the left hand. Is the land of the hand of justice, but uh, you know the world is not. There is a kind of dual nature inside everybody. I think. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time. And remember to stay tuned and strange.